0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, I'm Tom Keane. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Troy Gajewski joining us in the studio here in New York, Chief Investment Officer at Skybridge Capital. Great to see you, Troy. Let's talk about that. The Federal Reserve, everyone seems to view the Fed sometimes. There is this pockets of market participants that always bring it up. Does the Fed know something we don't know? Looking at those minutes yesterday, they know nothing that we know,
2: don't know. No, I mean, at the end of the day, they're data dependent. They've been articulating that for quite some time. You know, obviously last year, like most market participants, thought growth would stay stronger in Q4 and the impact from monetary tightening would not, not be as dramatic. And you know the beauty of where we are today, now that financial conditions have loosened off the extreme tights of uh, December, is every investor knows just as much as the Fed. You can look at the data as it, rolled, it rolls in and make your own informed decisions of whether you're being paid enough to take that risk. And you know one of the things that surprised us recently is that markets have been so sure that the next move is a cut. You know, when you talk to policymakers or economists or just look at the data yourselves, there's a non-zero probability that we have one to two more hikes this cycle, right? But there's also a reasonable probability the next move is a cut in 2020. And, and and that's been unusual the last six years because two years ago, it was either one hike, two hikes, three hikes, and there was no probability of a cut. And obviously in the, in the crisis, it was cutting rates to zero as fast as possible.
1: Just to put you on the spot a little bit, do you think the bar is higher for a hike? Or is the bar higher for a cut at this point?
2: You know, I think the bar is higher for a hike at this point, because if you look at the weakness of growth overseas and the natural slowing in the U.S. economy, you know, we talked about this before, where last year was peak cyclical growth. Uh, This year, we expected somewhere between two to two and a half, but it could be slightly lower given how Europe's really fallen off a cliff. Um, And you go into 2020 and you're looking at one and a half to two. So, Given that inflation's rolled over, given as slow as growth has been overseas, given the fact that we're much later in a cycle, and there's no way consumption growth or business fixed investment are going to be high this year in 2020 as they were last year, you know, that would lead us to think that there's a higher probability of a cut, but you can't completely discount the, the one to two more hikes in this cycle if growth picks back up.
0: Troy, good morning. I know on December twenty-sixth you told your Massachusetts Institute of Technology to load the boat, and they did double leveraged up. We're up 12% on the Dow, 15% on the S&P 500, 20% on the NASDAQ composite. How far behind is institutional Wall Street in the equity markets right now?
2: Uh, well, I would say anyone that follows asset allocation is behind, always behind equities, right? So if you're not, this cycle has been really, reminisce of the 90s, as you guys know, right, where, you know, the only way to keep up with equities is to be 100% long equities. And the only way to outperform equities has been to be levered long, right. But no one does that, right. The question is, how much of your equity capital do you peel off into fixed income, you know, and for defined benefit plans, it's not such a bad idea, because, you know, it helps provide cash flow, um, when you look at the average investor uh, compared to the late '90s, when it was all equities all the time, they own more fixed income, more alternative investments, and and so as you've seen the embrace of uh, asset allocation by not only institutions but high net worths, what that obviously leads to is less upside when things are fantastic, like we've you know really been through yeah. the last four years but also far less downside when things turn south. Oh, that's and so, a theory, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so that's why we look at it. Mm-hmm. It, it. If you believe in asset allocation and embrace it, it leads to more continuous, constant uh, return streams and, and dramatically less volatility. Um, but that being said, in cycles like this or the late 90s, you obviously would be better off 100% long equities.
0: Are you positioned for higher equity prices?
2: You know, so our job is to make high single digits, Tom, with as little downside and correlation and baited equities as possible. So when you have that mandate, uh, particularly at the late stage of a cycle, when when there's been so little alpha in the equity part of the capital structure, you know, we've been focused more on cash flows tied to the U.S. consumer, uh, commercial real estate, um, whether it's government-sponsored plans like uh, Freddie Mac's uh, Freddie K plan or SBL plan, um, you know, tied to the regional community banking system. So we look at that as we can provide high single digit returns but have far less upside if things go south now obviously that's disappointing in quarters like q1 or or in 2017 but if we can hit high single digit returns and be up in years like last year which we and a handful of others were you know that's the consistent return stream at least that our investors are looking for
1: so let's talk about that high single digit returns Mm -hmm. with low beta to equity don't you end up with a really concentrated portfolio
2: here in the united states well, you look, it, the consumer credit sector is vast, right? I mean, there's RMBS, there's uh, legacy student loans, um, there's some, uh, you might be surprised with some attractive auto loans, auto receivables these days. You know, if you look at the CMBS market, they're vast. Uh, you know, the banking system in the U.S. is vast. So, you know, from our standpoint, y- you always have to pick one or two or maybe three high conviction themes. Um, which are certainly uh, no more concentrated than being long equities because at the end of sure. the day, for long equities, you know it's all about beta.
1: But how do you bar about that? Just quickly, Troy.
2: Yeah. Well, again, we we're thinking of in- any in- individual investment theme. We're shooting for high single digits with much less downside than equities. So that's the bar it needs to clear. Now- any given time, certain ones have more convexity. Like coming off the Trump election, obviously bank credit quality was going to expand dramatically and improve. Um, right now, we're looking more at multifamily. Uh, certain plans that are sponsored by the government where you have slightly better upside, less downside. So so there's no classic barbelling like from an asset allocation standpoint of, hey, we're long equities, that gives us the juice. Yeah. And then we're also long bonds, which gives us downside protection. We're, we're, we're more linear thinkers, Tom, and looking for positive convexity and that every theme has to stand on its own. Interesting. And, ho- and hopefully provide some downside and correlation benefits with others or downside protection uh, but we're not going to add something that can make two to three percent just because it'll be you know uh, uh, down a little less if things go south
1: hey troy great to catch up with you and i've yeah. got to run troy Gaeski, that chief investment officer at skybridge capital
0: Our next guest is truly expert on the courage it took to clear markets in the US. But I, John, I can't convey how at Davos this was the and only backstory. She is beyond it was clear,
1: cleared the banking system. Betsy Gracing joining us now, head of banks and diversified finance research at Morgan Stanley. Betsy, it's always a privilege to get your thoughts, to read your research. Help us prepare for the bank earnings season that begins later this week.
3: Yes, tomorrow we're going to kick off with Wells and JP, uh, PNC, bright and early. Uh, Our expectation is that, look, the numbers are going to be a little bit weak. They're going to be down year on year in trading and in advisory. We believe that's more than in the price, right, because it's uh, expected given the fact that we had, you know, the government shutdown. So we should be prepared for that. Our our estimates are still a little bit below the street. Um, And I think that's just, you know, people being a little late to update their numbers for what we know.
1: I read one of your recent notes, pricing the rate cut. The fear of the rate mm-hmm. cut seems to be driving everything, particularly at the back end of last year and into this year. Have we priced that in too?
3: We believe so. Now look, let me explain what that means. To your point, fear of recession seems to be priced into the bank stocks and nowhere else in the S&P. When we look at the S&P, the PE is, you know, close to close to highs and the relative PE of the banking sector today that I cover is bumping around cycle lows, so I, you know, I kind of ask myself, why is that? Um. And it's it's hard for me to, to understand yeah. why people think there's you know a recession coming in the near term.
0: That's right where I wanted to go. But first, Betsy, it's really important. How did James Gorman do yesterday in the Love Fest in Washington? <laughs> Are you trying to get Betsy in trouble?
1: Are you trying to get Betsy in trouble?
0: Oh, we could talk and get her into so much trouble.
3: I I had a yeah. lot of meetings on my calendar already. Oh, so you did? Yeah, Good for you, I, did, Betsy. I, I, I didn't watch. Betsy well, Be- missed that one.
0: <clears throat> Betsy, to your point on the mystery of bank valuations. Do the banks goose that with financial engineering or do they just have to wait to find a better value?
3: You know, I think that what has to happen is we need to crank through the next several quarters here. And our expectation is that we have solid economy and that, you know, our our, um, my colleague Ellen Zentner, who you know well, uh, is looking for a pick up in GDP over, you know, 2Q, 3Q um, from what is expected to be a low point in 1Q due to government shutdown and other reasons. The,
0: the, the banks, and I just happened to review Citigroup yesterday, picking randomly among the gathered, the operating income build at these ginormous institutions is extraordinary. Yesterday did Washington or our listeners or myself or John, do we actually understand how big the big banks are?
3: Oh, me? Oh, that's a question for me. Um, You know, yeah, I do expect that, you know, people understand that the, 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 you know, top five banks have, depending on the asset class, 50, 60 percent of, you know, the market. Um, Importantly, that's in part because they've been investing in their plant and equipment, investing in their technology, um, investing in, you know, branch refreshes, et cetera. Not that other institutions haven't either, but brand matters advertising matters national reach matters and and these are things that are you know working to the advantage of some of the larger institutions betsy can you
1: just give us a hand and help us out with something that a lot of think people find difficult to understand and that's the relationship between treasury yields and what should and shouldn't happen with bank stocks what we've seen over uh-huh. the last year or so is as the yield curve narrows flattens Bank stocks roll over, but at the same time, net interest margins are not getting narrower. They've been getting wider. Are we misunderstanding the relationship and how that's (laughs) evolved over the last 10 years between what happens with the yield curve and what happens with bank profitability?
3: Well, it's a great question. And I think one of the things that's happened over the past decade or so is that, you know, bank um, business mix has widened out a little bit, right? I mean, you go back 10 years ago and you had companies that were just broker-dealers or companies that were very heavily skewed towards you know, corporate or consumer, and now you've got more of a mix. And in addition, you do have um, a bigger portion of the deposits in some organizations coming from consumer deposits. And then the last thing I would highlight is the yield curve flattens. That, that does pressure certain parts of their business. But what I think the market forgets is that banks benefit from non-interest-bearing deposits. and non-interest-bearing deposits are as much as about 20% of your average earning assets. So you know really the not only the shape of the curve matters, but the absolute level of rates. And when the front end of the curve is at 240, you ha- and you have 20% of your your average earning assets funded by 0% cost of funds, I think that's the piece that the market forgets.
1: So deposit bailer has stayed really low, uh, and we have this, essentially, right. we have this free funding, and you can then lend it out. I'm making this sound very simplistic, but you can make a lot of money that way. And I'm just wondering whether the sensitivity to the yield curve has changed quite radically over the last 10 years. To what degree mm. is that true, Betsy?
3: I think on a bank-by-bank basis, there's some evidence of that. Um, as a system overall, what we've seen is as these rate cycles um, you know, continue, you get... You actually have had a buildup over the last 10 years in liquidity, and that liquidity is relatively cheap for banks. So that's my answer to your question.
1: Betsy, thank you. Really appreciate it.
0: One of our joys, there's guests that we see every spring meeting of the IMF. Jacob Frankel uh, with us tomorrow, among others. Catherine Mann of Citigroup. Uh, we are thrilled to have with us now William Lee uh, with the Milken Institute with Citigroup for years. And, of course, his public service at the International Monetary Fund as well. Bill, I want to go back to first principles. And we saw it a bit overnight with President Trump tweeting on uh, the evil trade of Europe as well. Exactly how mercantilist, how 17th century are these IMF meetings?
4: The IMF meetings is like a gathering of the masters of economists. And I think one of the differences between golf and e- economics is that here we have a bipolar world. The International Monetary Fund is an a, 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 a edifice of multilateralism. And so we are all at the IMF worried about why it is that President Trump is so bilateral. But the domestic economists here in the U.S. are getting more and more bilateral. And President Trump is saying to the world, you know, I'm going to bash down the bilateral deficit with China. Then I'm going to bash down the bilateral deficit with the EU. And, and this kind of bashing down of bilateral deficits and, and, and surpluses is, is doing nothing but just keeping that aggregate – current account deficit as big as it always was. So, you, so it's, a, it's a fool's game in part. But I think President Trump has got onto something because he's trying to say we need to restructure our economy so that we can compete with our biggest competitors, China and the and EU.
0: But do we overestimate our fear of their wealth, our fear of their growing incomes? Do we overestimate the demographic economics of China?
4: Absolutely, Tom. Uh, we, just as we overestimated the, the <laughs> Soviet Union and what a huge power it was supposed to be and it turned out that they were not. China may well be that, but one thing we know about China is that their intellectual powerhouse, their intellectual capital was trained at MIT, Caltech and Stanford. And, and these are the places that, that we have a handle on. So we know that China is in fact pushing the frontier out and it's up to us to develop our own intellectual capital, our own technologies to be able to compete.
1: Bill, let's just assume that the resolution with China is a positive one. The outcome is a good one. Let's move on to Europe. What happens next?
4: Boy, John, you know, I, I, as an ugly American and as someone who was the head of the German desk uh, when I was at the IMF, uh, they used to say, Bill, when you go to Europe, it's like John Wayne walking down the Champs-Élysées. And I have to say that Europe is a, such a morass of structural problems that they barely can get a one-handle on growth. And so, so when you talk about all these issues of Brexit and, and continental Europe and the banking system, uh, in Italy going to default, I think this to me that's just characteristic of what Europe really is slow growth, full stop, whereas China and U.S. still
1: have the potential for high-digit growth. That's what I worry about, Bill, that China can respond to a trade dispute with the United States. I really struggle to see how the Europeans can. The Chinese can inject some stimulus into the economy. Monetary policy in Europe looks totally exhausted. Fiscal policy looks incredibly constrained. What do they do? The
4: old retort of IMF Policy prescription, structural change, and guess what? That's the last thing they ever do. in fact, they never get to it. So I, I honestly believe that if I were a global investor, the last place I'd be looking to <clears throat> okay. would be Europe.
0: Well, if you're a global investor and your name is Prime Minister May or David Davies is, is making headlines right now on the Telegraph, I, I mean, is the United Kingdom wrong to say, you know we just really don't want to go down that road?
4: United Kingdom in, in some ways is very special because London is still a global capital market, a global uh, a place where, where global investors go to allocate their funds. And, and whether it's tied to Europe or tied to the rest of the world in some other way, Europe, uh, the UK is gonna do quite well in and of itself. Trouble is, the UK is more than just London. And, and the, the the other parts of the U.K. have to start to fall in line with the same problems that's facing Europe, which is they've got structural problems. The technology, for example, in the U.K., U.K. used to be the best air, uh, jet engine makers in the world with Rolls-Royce. They have lost that edge.
1: Bill, let's so- talk about the service sector, shall we, and what's going to happen next in the U.K.? What has happened with services? I barely ever hear it discussed.
4: When was the last time you worried about insurance from Lloyd's? Uh, I mean, you know, they, again, I think uh, the, the, the the service sector and everything else in the Euro, uh, in, in the UK has to modernize. When was the last time a hit movie was made in the UK? Uh, US right now has comparative advantage in the export of services. Uh, Marvel comic uh, movies and, and 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 all these 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 these. Uh, uh, Disney productions, they are flooding the world and I think the UK has got to, get up with, uh, got to get up to speed with doing exactly that.
1: What has been clear, Bill, over the last few months is that Europe is incredibly divided about how to deal with the Brexit situation. Tom earlier bringing up the example of Emmanuel Macron trying to play to the audience back home trying to hold things up. If you can't get the whole of Europe to agree, how on earth do we get the whole of Europe to agree and to get the UK to agree to the same thing?
4: You just repeated exactly what we were saying before, which is, uh, your, your, Europe is <laughs> as an ugly American, I've got to say, Europe is in a thousand-year war, and it's going to continue the next thousand years, I think, battling okay. tribalism.
0: So what can Madame Lagarde do about this? I mean, you know, we come down here, happy talk, interviews, Madame Lagarde later today, Bill Lee. But what can a multilateral institution do given these fractured relationships?
4: I think the best we can do is to recognize that countries are countries and there are national objectives. So does Brussels matter?
0: I mean, this is perfect overnight. Charles de Gaulle, Angela Merkel, they matter. Brussels doesn't matter? Brussels has got
4: to get out of the way just as Washington's got to get out of the way. And I think letting letting, uh, entrepreneurship and private sector take hold in Europe is the biggest challenge yet to come.
0: Great comments. Billy, thank you so much for the Milken Institute. John, you know, to get to our controversial and esteemed guest uh, here now, let me just say that, uh, John, uh, about the time claims were back where they were in October of 69, the hit that Steve Moore was listening to was Suspicious Minds. Oh,
1: what's it? (laughs) Was it really? (laughs) And what a number it is as well. I'm really pleased to say that Stephen Moore joins us now, distinguished visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and we assume the presumed President Trump choice for a seat on the Federal Reserve. Steve, did you ever think you'd become this controversial?
5: (laughs) Well, no, I didn't. I'm sort of surprised by the... Resistance by the left to my nomination, but it's going fine. I, you know, I'm, I'm well. I'm doing well with the senators, and so uh, this is going to happen. Um, you know, I do have some controversial views. I'm uh, in terms of what I want to do with the Fed. I feel very strongly about more transparency at the Fed. I think there should be more openness and sunlight about how the Fed operates. Um, I do believe that uh, maybe this is controversial. Maybe it's not. I believe as, as Donald Trump believes and Larry Kudlow believes that growth does not cause inflation I'll say that again growth does not cause inflation I think there are too many people at the Fed and too many people in the financial industry who believe that every time we get growth sometimes we have to pull that back because it causes inflation if you have an increase in goods and services prices fall they don't rise
1: we'll get to the economics in a okay just to get to the process quickly yeah when does it become official Uh,
5: well I have to go through an FBI clearance and I have to also uh, do a financial disclosure that could take, I don't know exactly how long it'll take for that to be completed, maybe a month. And so the the way this process works is that you're formally nominated once you've gone through the clearance. So Steve what was Moore. unusual is that, that that this story kind of got out before. Uh, usually you'd go through the clearance first and then be nominated. The that
0: that state. <laughs> so. Steve Moore, the uproar Over your candidacy to be with the Fed is about theory as well. Let us begin with the defense of supply side theory. There are many that push against it, and much of what they say is we don't have tangible evidence that growth doesn't harm fiscal trajectories. Sorry, that growth does not work. How do we get growth and a better debt and a better deficit?
5: Well, look. I mean, supply side. I am a supply sider. I believe the way to grow the economy is increase the supply of goods and services and increase employment. And by the way, I mean, has there ever been a, a better vindication of supply side economics than the last two years? When all the liberal remember uh, when Trump was elected, all the all the his critics said he was going to cause a second great depression. Remember, and this was going to be the you know the worst financial meltdown right. in history if he was elected. And of course, just okay. the opposite has happened, where right. we now have uh, you know with right. markets up some forty percent. Since he was yeah. elected, we have a very strong economy, right. and I think the tax cuts had. I, I I'm, I'm totally proud of the tax cuts. I mean, has there ever been a policy that's worked so rapidly and so effectively as the tax cuts okay, to grow the, the economy? The,
0: I want to take it over to the fiscal. Case. The phone ringing there, folks, was Herman Cain on line two. Um, <laughs> Steve Moore, yes. Steve Moore. I, I, I want to talk Steve Moore about the expansion of the debt and deficit. My uh-huh. chart for chart of the year last year was the twin deficits: the trade deficit, the president so concerned with, and all also the growing fiscal deficit isn't the price of a supply side cuddle more theory at some point all of the 80s that debt and deficit catches up with us
5: well look i think what's most important is that how i i am a deficit hawk by you you go back the last 25 years i don't think come on that, Steve. look uh, well let me make this point i mean it's a very important one i don't think you can i challenge you to find anyone anyone in Washington who has wanted to cut government spending more than me. I mean, really, I don't think you, since I was 25 years old, I came to this town, I was the youngest but budget Steve, analyst in Washington. I Steve, wanted our, to cut Steve, government spending. We have to cut government spending. Okay. Everyone knows we have to cut government spending. By the way, it's not a Republican or Democrat thing. Both parties want to spend the, way but too Steve, much money.
0: You will enter the Fed with the reality of a vector on the twin deficits that take us back to middle Reagan. Can we sustain that with supply-side theory,
5: if the economy is growing, the most important thing about the debt is to make sure the economy is growing faster than the debt. I think you'd all agree on that. And you know, if you if we stayed on the course that we were had been on for the previous ten years, where the economy was growing at 1.8, 1.9 percent, that's not sustainable. The debt is going to cycle out of control. Uh, we have increased the growth rate from 1.5 percent in Obama's last year to over 3% now. I mean, that's a, that's an incredible record in, in two years. So you get that economy growing at 3% on a sustainable level, you're going to level off debt as a share of GDP, and over time the debt is going to be reduced as a per- percent of GDP. But we do have to cut government spending. There's no doubt about it. There's no argument there. Government spending is way, way too high. We have to do something about the entitlements. We have to do something about bringing down the d- domestic spending and, and even the military. I think we spend too much money, frankly, on the military. We have to cut. Everyone knows that the problem. I mean, even you know, it's not a revenue problem, right? We have more revenues in 2018 than any time in history. It is a spending problem.
1: Well, Steve, a lot of people listening. Well, to this right. Program, I mean, do you, not, do you deny that? A lot that? of people listening to this program yeah. right now yeah. are going to be assuming that three percent is a story of yesteryear. It has yeah. been and gone. 3% is no longer sustainable. Why? The projections that we see from the economists that join us on this program. Yeah, but they're wrong. Most of them have two handles. Why are they wrong? Why are you <laughs> because right? Because
5: these are the same people who said, I mean, you know, I, I i don't know who you're talking to, but, you know, all the people at the New York Times and the Washington Post and so on are the same people who two years ago go back and read what they said. Well, I'm if not Donald talking Trump to journalists. If Donald Trump is elected, we are going. I'm not talking to
1: journalists, Steve. I'm talking to economists who are forecasting On average, the estimate that we're looking at, the median estimate in our Bloomberg survey, 1.9% for 2020. Let's assume they're wrong, you're right, that we get 3% next year. Well, hold on.
5: I'm not saying that we are going to get – what I'm saying is we have the right – if we have the right set of policy – place is policies in place look we have created an incredibly pro-growth pro-business atmosphere with the reduction in tax rates right with the reduction in regulation with the pro-american energy policies and other pro-business policies we've got now my problem has been I do think over the last four months or so, the Fed has been too tight. They've looked at this economic growth, and they right. felt like they've had to pull it back. And my point is, growth does not Steve, cause inflation.
0: let's get a little practice here on you going before the Senate, the House, yeah. and everybody else in at Washington. The fact is, they're going to tell you it's a gilded age. You're going to say at Heritage that it's a locky in America, every man for himself. How does Steve Moore define the income and the wealth to, wealth inequality that we saw for example yesterday between Mr. Diamond and the congresswoman from Harlem. How do you define this gilded age and what are you going to do about
5: it? Oh, I love growth. I mean, I'm I'm for growth. I'm for uh, everybody. What, growth for richer. Mr. Diamond or <laughs> growth know, I, for I congresswoman Vela by the way, you call this a gilded age. Wait a minute, you've seen the statistics. For the first, we not only have we had the strongest wage growth for American workers in 15 years, but according to the Wall Street Journal just two weeks ago, the biggest wage gains In the American economy, you guys know this, the biggest wage gains have gone to to the lowest income, lowest skilled workers. So that's reducing income inequality. It's not raising it. We've
1: got a minute left. I need to whip through some really quick questions. I need some quick answers. Why is Fed independence so important?
5: Fed independence is important because we don't want politicians making the decisions about what the Fed should be doing. It should be made by professionals. Uh, but that doesn't mean everyone has to be a Ph.D. economist. I love the fact that Herman Cain is going to the Fed. I they agree with that. Practical I agree with that, Steve. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. The yeah. Next question is, if the perceived independence of the Federal Reserve is damaged by your nomination, are you willing to withdraw? Well, how
5: would it be? It's not going to be. I'm, I am independent. When I speak, to I speak, guess increasingly they believe I the perception of, of the independence has been damaged read my by my your book. nomination. My book is very clear, Trumponomics. People have to read it. They don't know what they're talking about. I'm reading I've been Herman very critical of Donald right Trump on a lot of issues, on trade, and I think he's spending too much money. So I will be independent of him, but I also agree with a lot of things that he's done, and I'm not going to apologize for that. I helped put
0: the agenda together.
1: Stephen Moore, great to catch up with you. Thank you. Got fiery, Tom. I wish we had a bit more time with him. <laughs> Me too. Come well, on, Steve. the next Steve. time
0: Stephen Moore's on, we'll have him on for a solid
1: hour and we'll go at this. Maybe we can get Mr. Moore. We do Moore and- 60 minutes with Stephen Moore and then we can get Herman Cain to join us as well and we can just hash it all out.
0: <laughs> well, it, it is a tumultuous time not only for economic theory. What we missed there, Stephen Moore, a huge proponent of MMT. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Seems so. Steve, great to catch up with you.
0: Debbie Dingell is, of course, a congresswoman uh, well-known in Washington and, of course, in her Michigan, a descendant of all of the Body by Fisher uh, people, and she joins us uh, this morning. Debbie, what was it like to grow up in the extended, and I do mean extended, Fisher family? I mean, innovation was there from the get-go, wasn't it? Well, uh,
6: good morning, and it I mean, yes, it was. I mean, for a long time. Michigan, Southeast Michigan, was known for being at the forefront of innovation technology, trying to get the next design. Unfortunately, uh, I think in the 70s, people began to, I don't want to say become lazy, but got settled in. And, you know, we had some very tough times in the industry, and people realized that we weren't keeping current with some of the times and some of the challenges and since then the auto industry keeps going up and down in terms of what's happening and I fear that there's so many challenges out there right now that we've got to make sure that the U.S., I want it to be Southeast Michigan, is staying at the forefront and it's a challenge right
0: now. What is the Dingle prescription to do that? We had a president overnight begin to once again advance the idea of trade discussions let around automobiles in Europe as well. They are brutal or whatever he said, trading partners as well. But what is the Dingle prescription to jumpstart America back to manufacturing excellence?
6: Well, I don't, I actually don't, I think one of the reasons that President Trump won and I was one of the people that predicted it, is because we had bad trade deals that didn't create a level playing field. So I don't think, I always call it NAFSA 2.0 because I want everybody to understand what we're talking about. NAFSA 1.0 hurt the industry terribly. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, and global climate is real. I mean, we see it happening every day. And other countries, China's mandating electric vehicles, Western Europe mandating electric vehicles. India's mandating electric vehicles. And our country is not encouraging uh, the development. We don't have uh, the electricity infrastructure to support it. And now the president actively mm-hmm. taking shots at EVs. That's not helpful because we're trading in a global marketplace. We've got to have product that's going to go there. Nor can, you know, I was really proud of the fact Autonomous vehicles are also coming because there's consumer confidence issues. They're afraid of them, but they're being built, and they're going to be built in China, Western Europe, and India again, and we can't, the House unanimously, and I am very proud of this, unanimously passed out a committee and the Congress, a regulatory framework for those to be developed and explored. Senate killed it. And, you know, again, we're standing still. There's not a regulatory framework for it. Yesterday, several of the companies, uh, Toyota, Ford and General Motors, announced that they were forming a consortium to study uh, autonomous vehicles and work on them. But, you know, this stuff's going to happen. It's going to be built someplace.
0: It's going to be, be built someplace. Be built. Yeah, it yeah.
6: should be built here.
0: Well, this is a wonderful conversation today with Debbie Dingell. She's a congresswoman from Michigan, of course, and wife of the late John Dingell. I watched the festivities, congresswoman, uh, yesterday between the acclaim Maxine Waters, age eighty, head of the House Financial Services Committee, and at one point I said to myself, John Dingell would never have asked questions in that way. Where is the civility gone? Where is the grace gone, even in talking? to evil Wall Street instead of the almost sniping that we saw over the last number of days.
6: I am very concerned about the tone of what's happening in America, period. Thank you. You know, I try never to attack anybody individually from the White House on down. But we leaders set tones. They, you know, the, the rhetoric, the lack of civility is coming every place. I think the internet, while it was founded to help connect us, has become a tool of total lack of civility. It lets people anonymously say the most divisive, horrendous, horrific thing. And I think all of us, I mean, I've gotten much more verbal about this uh, since with all of these shootings and all of these, you know, I live in a city that's got the largest population of, of, of Muslims. And hate crimes that are going on there you know you sort of live it in the community right. that you're going in but the jewish community is also seeing it not it's not it's not okay and all of us have to start yeah. up. but it starts at i'm one the house has to do it the senate's got to do it administration's
0: right. got to do it people yearn maybe for a moderate republican or moderate democrat stance here how should old-line democrats and disaffected republicans how should they adapt to the new, strident, progressive, democratic message? Do they wait it out? Do they change it? Now, even President Obama the other day weighing in on this, what would you do there? Do you just, is patience the Dingle prescription? Well,
6: John Deagle probably would be more patient than, well, actually, John Dingle would be twittering right now with some of his very wise thoughts. You know, when he did adapt, you know, when... John Staff used to collect his witticisms or the things that his daily, you know, sort of wisdoms that he would just say things you can't imagine. And he mm-hmm. took to Twitter very well because his wisdom was sort of made for Twitter. I myself, I, I'm not a raging liberal. No one would call me that. Uh, but I am for Medicare for all. But I'm in a, I, I, I want to figure out how we get health care for every American. But I want to bring everybody to the table. I don't, you know, a lot of, this is true. We have to have these economic discussions. We're the only industrialized nation in the world that doesn't guarantee all of its citizens health care. And we're competing in a marketplace where we're twice as much as most other countries in getting
0: okay but well the great fear is socialized medicine can the democratic party with a democratic president can they deliver modern health care that isn't socialized
6: we have to figure that out don't we? and you know the fact of the matter is everybody screamed at about the affordable care act and it's not perfect there are things that must be changed and we can't get to changing or making the law better because everybody's always playing games with it but you've seen how the pendulum has swung from 10 years ago where everybody was, you know, it was the worst thing since sliced bread. And now in the last election, people understand that we need to protect people with pre-existing conditions. And people are trying to eliminate that. People forget that in the late, uh, uh, and when that bill was passed, the auto companies were healthcare providers who happened to build products. And a lot of companies, the health care costs are a very small businesses
0: can't afford health care. we yeah. got to figure this out. Well, we got to figure it out, and there's an urgency to it. Debbie Dingle, thank you so much for an extended conversation uh, today. Uh, Deborah Dingle of the 12th District in Michigan, a Democrat. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.